You are listening to Preview Events, a series of recorded public events hosted at the Peace Research Institute Oslo. We conduct research on the conditions for peaceful relations between states, groups and people. Our seminars cover a wide range of topics on war and peace and are open to the public. Visit our webpage prio.org to learn more about our institute and future events. Good morning and welcome to this uh, seminar on the occasion of the publication of the book Humanitarian Extractivism, the Digital Transformation of Aid by Kristin Bergtora Sandvik. Um, Kristin is a, a, prof- a research professor of humanitarian studies at PRIO and a professor of the sociology of law at the University of Oslo. She came to PRIO in 2009 from Harvard Law School and has been a motor, promoter and motivator for humanitarian studies and studies of technology, refugee management and related issues at PRIO for many years. She's also led several projects here and at the University of Oslo and currently leads the project Do No Harm. Ethical Humanitarian Innovation and Digital Bodies, uh, that this book also comes out of, relates to. She's written an insane amount of articles and edited volumes, and now she also found the patience and time to write a monograph. So congratulations with that, Kristin. Kristin will now give a presentation of the book for about half an hour. And then we'll have a panel discussion where Kristin will be joined by Morten Tønnesen Krokan from the Norwegian Red Cross and Anand Nair from Norwegian Refugee Council. And that discussion will be moderated by Maria Gabrielsen Jumber at Prio. My name is Christophe Liden, and I'm very happy now to give the word to Kristin. Thank you. Yeah, I don't need. I'm mic'd up, I guess, so you guys can hear me. So, yes, so thank you all for coming and braving the rain and storm and and delayed public transport. Um, I'm very happy to be here today with finally having managed this book. Um, I want to thank you guys for coming. Um, I want to thank good colleagues at PRIO for being amazing friends and colleagues for the past 15 years. And for my friends and colleagues at the Faculty of Law, actually all the way back from 2008, 2000, when I became a research assistant. Um, I've never had a sad day at work. I think I'm probably the only one I know who's been happy every single day of my work life. And I'm, I'm very grateful to all of you. I'm also grateful to my family and my friends. There's some family in the back there. Um, thank you for coming. Um, but also I'm grateful to the excellent collaboration with humanitarian NGOs and the UN over the last 10 years. Um, I'm grateful to activists, to local community members, to entrepreneurs, to innovators for having the patience to engage with me and inviting me in. Um, I think also I would like to acknowledge the significant amount of privilege I had uh, with all the access I've been enjoying in in writing this book. Uh, And the book is dedicated to all humanitarians trying to do good better, which is, is a hard thing today in a global geopolitical climate shaped by enormous human suffering and and seemingly intractable challenges. So push on. 
And now I think I'll do this, so you'll switch. That's thanks. Okay, we'll move on. So in this book, um, I'm telling a couple of stories. So 13 years ago, UN OCHA, which is the coordinating uh, body for the UN for humanitarian affairs, published a seminal report, Humanitarianism in the Network Age, claiming that everyone agrees that technology has changed how people interact and how power is distributed. So in 2024, I think we can agree that, yes, things have changed and power has been redistributed, but possibly not in the direction we hoped it would be distributed towards communities and and local NGOs, for example. Uh, The digital transformation of aid has radically shifted power, but it's towards states, the private sector, and also rogue actors um, and the humanitarian system itself. Uh, This book comes out of a wish to sort of not only tackle singular issues, but but see what the digital transformation is doing to aid in itself. So it started out as a a kind of set of more or less random chapters, but then I understood that this was a more systematic process happening. Um, and looking back, uh, you know, this is not this is not about the effectiveness of technology or how things fail. It's about how, how things change. Um, and so the chapters they build on my previous research, but also engagement with, with humanitarian actors. Uh, as you can tell, I'm not coming to this as a pure academic. I've been an ethics advisor working inside projects. I've been an advocate. I like to think of myself as a friendly critic. I'm a teacher. I'm indebted to my students for challenging me and engaging over a long period of time. Um, But also, of course, I am a scholar. Um, Yes, so in this this book, um, I tell a couple of stories about about technology. Um, And I think I'll just walk you through the stories, and then I'll talk a little bit more about humanitarian extractivism. I should acknowledge that that wasn't really what I thought I was doing. I had this long, long, long title, which nobody would have remembered ever. And then the peer reviewers say, no, 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 this is a book about humanitarian extractivism, and that goes in the title. You know, this is your first book. You don't actually argue about this. So I'm like, yes, it's a book about humanitarian extractivism. Excellent. I'll, I'll take that. I would have taken anything. But, you know, this, this sounded good. But then I also started developing a theoretical framework, which actually made sense to bring the book together. Um, so if we could, uh, if we're not switching, actually, we're staying on the slide here. Um, so the first thing that I have told a story about here is the digital body in aid. Um, I think today, most of us are quite clear that we have data doubles, digital twins. Uh, you know, we worry about what happens to our Facebook account when we pass away. I mean, these things are kind of natural to us. This book is sort of looking back over the past decade and trying to figure out how things evolved, how things that were once unique became mainstream in the field. So back in 2018, a UNHCR official tweeted a photo of an Iraqi refugee girl holding up a piece of paper with all her personal data, including family composition and location. People were so angry. This was back when Twitter was like Twitter, not what it is today. But she was inundated with criticism for violating this girl, this child's digital body. And this was actually the first time there had been any type of, of public conversation about the digital body as an object of protection in its own right. And, and the communications official said, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, but it was quite, quite interesting uh, as a development. Uh, 
So what we see today is increasingly that humanitarian organizations are blind unless you can give up your digital data. I mean, we, we see this, of course, in our domestic welfare systems as well. Uh, you have to give up your biodata, your name, your address, your family composition, but you also increasingly have to give up your innate in, in your iris, your, your fingerprints. Uh, in some migration systems, you have to hand in your DNA. So to get protection, this is a trade-off. You offer up all your data and your digital body. The difference between being in a regular, not regular, a liberal democracy and an aid situation is that you do this or you starve. If you want your kids to have access to school, this is what you do. Um, if the information is wrong or changes, it's difficult to change. Uh, if you're no longer a refugee, no longer receiving food aid, uh, no longer in that position of being an aid recipient, it's very, very difficult to get your profile changed or deleted. You will stay as that refugee with a digital body literally forever, as the system is rigged today. Um, and, and I think this sort of the, this digital body needs to be considered uh, when we speak about the digital transformation as such. Um, the second story I tell um, is a little bit of a complicated story um, because I'm the only one who's told it so far. Um, so the International Red Cross Committee is probably, and, and no offense to all the humanitarians in the audience, uh, but this is probably the most respected and below organization in the humanitarian field. It's very admired. It does an incredible job under very difficult circumstances. Uh, but back in 2021, there was a hack. Um, and everyone was completely, including the organization itself, was scandalized that they were hacked. Um, nobody was scandalized that they had put themselves in a position to be hacked in this manner. Um, and, and I have to say, across the humanitarian community, us critics, if this had been UNHCR and the World Food Program, we would have been up in arms, you know, furious across sort of the public trade press. Now, we were also completely scandalized that they had been hacked. It was complete failure of sort of critical discussion. I'll get back to little, this chapter a little bit later. The third chapter is about humanitarian work. Um, something interesting happened uh, with, with the field once it got digitized. So obviously, we always had technology, you know, landlines, typewriters, uh, eventually cell phones, so I'm not saying that humanitarians haven't had technology, but by digitizing the field, um, you know, when everything is data-driven, two things happen. I'm going to say we. We can become a risk to the communities we try to protect, but we're also at risk increasingly in, in local organizations, in local operations, and, and understanding that domestic local staff will be mostly at risk. So I'll give you two examples, and, and I, I love these examples because for you guys, this is self-evident, but 10 years ago, it wasn't. So the first one is in September 2014. There's this Swiss humanitarian worker in northern Syria. He wrote a tweet containing the GPS coordinates of a bunker near the Turkish-Syrian border that had been seized by a member of the Islamic State. And so he asked the U.S. Central Command and all followers to just blow it away. Not so neutral to ask, you know the military to bomb something, 
But the response was, was swift. Um, so Islamic State-affiliated accounts on Twitter sent out a barrage of threatening messages saying they were coming for Mr. Aid Worker. So he disbanded his operation and went into hiding um, and, and received, obviously, a lot of death threats. But, you know, today this is pretty obvious. You know, the adversary can't find you. A decade ago, people were kind of surprised, not only by his stupidity, but also by sort of the dynamics of this. Um, but we're also, you know, we're also putting people at risk. So the same year, uh, personal details of nearly 10,000 people seeking asylum in Australia were unlawfully posted online by the Australian government and, and accessed by at least uh, government actors from at least 11 countries and later on used um, specifically to threaten and harass some of these asylum seekers in, in domestic processes. Um, Today we notice these hacks happen all the time to us, but when they happen to people seeking asylum that are extremely vulnerable, it adds really a different dimension. So this is the risk in the sector. You know, we put people at risk when we fail, but we also put people at risk when we succeed within this, within this uh, framework. Then the next story is about UNICEF. Um, UNICEF has probably been the most sort of gung-ho innovation actor in the humanitarian field. It's an enormous organization. It's doing a lot of development work um, and, and sort of bridging this humanitarian development nexus. Started already back in 2008 and 9 of really being sort of focused on, on developing standards. They've also been engaging in a lot of activities, and one of them was this Wearables for Good Challenge back in 2015. They invited, I think they almost got 100 entrants to write, you know, do a wearables competition necklace, armband, something on your head, something that, you know, it's just tagged to your clothes that could, you know, provide some sort of, of uh, improvement or benefit for very young children. So the competition was won by two outfits, one called Soap Pen, which was a crayon that when you, you could wash yourself with it and it would produce funny colors and kids would like to wash hands. So this is obviously before the pandemic when no one was interested in whether you would like to wash hands, you were going to wash hands. Um, the second one was Cushy Baby, which started out as a necklace registering small or babies, infants, um, vaccination records. They won the competition and within two years had developed this into an enormous biometric platform that was still around this kid's neck. But, you know, surveying whether the mom was doing any good, the health worker was doing his or her job and, and really sort of wildly collecting, da collecting data uh, with, with no specific view on accountability. But, but having, you know, done, you know, working on this, this challenge, I couldn't see any kids. I couldn't see any specific interest in children. And, and it occurred to me after a long time that this was largely a shared activity between UNICEF and its private sector partners, ARM and FROG. Uh, so it's a, it's a computer uh, or it's a technology producer and it's a design company. Um, so they would find something to do together. It was like a little bit like, not like a date, but it was really organized around them trying to find meaningful collaboration. Very little interest in, in what happened or the benefit for the children. That we can actually see from what Cushy Baby did afterwards. But it was interesting to sort of, I think the field has largely abandoned innovation challenges today, but it was interesting to unpack. Um, then there is the early drone airspace flying high and failing fast. So um, 
maybe 12 years ago, we, we started writing about the humanitarian drones here. And it was, it was exciting times. It was interesting. It was the middle of the drone war. And drones were extremely controversial in the humanitarian field. Um, and, and today, this is mainstreamed. A lot of organizations have very responsible drone operations. Uh, but back then, things were quite different. So this chapter looks at three sort of three cases. So one is sort of the early projects going into African locations, flying over urban, dense urban areas without permission, not caring to get permission, and sort of how drone entrepreneurs kind of continued in this sort of neo-colonial airspace. Today, you know, lots of lots of local actors, community-based organizations, use drones successfully. But it started out quite differently. Um, the second one is, is, uh, is an example from, um, from the Syrian airlift project. And, and this, it's a little bit of a, not mean, but it's a harsh example to use. So, because there were so many people in this field inventing drones. They had solutions, so they were just looking for problems. Um, I mean, my worst-case scenario drone is the edible drone. It was the guy who invented an edible drone that he would send out so he could fight the famine. You know, the local communities could just sit down and eat his drone. Um, but, but to just get, give you a sense of the hubris that was around. So the Syrian Airlift Project, they built very expensive drones, actually, that would be sent in as kind of suicide drones to Syria. Uh, so they would help communities. But they wouldn't, there wouldn't really be an expectation that they would come back, so it wasn't viable. In the end, they, they ended up also setting fire to a large area, I think, out at Stanford, and, and the project closed. And the project leader actually published a very, very honest mea culpa um, on, on this failure website. But I'll read this paragraph for you. Just as Ber the Berlin airlift was a symbol of hope and an act of defiance against Soviet aggression, the Syria airlift project defies those who use starvation and medical deprivation as weapons. By tapping into the magic of airplanes... It fires imaginations and offers Syrians a glimpse of hope beyond the darkness of war. After four years of barbaric war with no end in sight, they have little hope and their spirits are broken. With the Syria Airlift Project, we could give them something to believe in and give them direct roles in bringing healing back to their country. After sending in about 10 drones, they sort of gave up. But, you know, this was the discourse. For you guys, it, it, it sounds incredible, but this was how we talked about this. And then uh, the last one example in this chapter is, is from the Nepal earthquake. And, and before this, there was a kind of a, there's one, many of you know Patrick Meyer. He's been sort of the leader of the humanitarian drone community. He was the leader in crisis mapping before this. Then he turned to robotics. Very positive about drones. Amazing skills at organizing. But about one week into the Nepal earthquake, Patrick wakes up and realizes that something is wrong. There are a lot of people kind of bringing in their drones and insisting that they're going to do something. But they're not coordinating. They're getting arrested. They're falling down. They're being useless and, and sort of basically rogue. Um, so this also marks sort of a turning point in our little drone community uh, where people start organizing for better standards. So it's kind of a chaos story, but also a little bit uplifting in the sense that the community came together after this and started fleshing out norms started negotiating what would be acceptable behavior or not, started trying to put some boundaries on individual private sector actors or individuals just to show up with a drone. Um, and then we end up where we are today, where I think it's become much less controversial and, and much less, I mean, it's not really a game changer, but it's become a functional part of the humanitarian toolbox. 
And then it's the last story is, is about an innovation lab. Um, it's a debt project, um, which was a collaboration between START and a couple of other British entities. Um, it was supposed to do disaster response innovation. Very large project. I think they had uh, 10 million pounds. Uh, and they had uh, labs in Kenya, in Bangladesh, in the Philippines, in Jordan. Um, I think I'm forgetting one. Um, I was able to do field work with them in Jordan and, and come to Nepal. Uh, but it was interesting because the, in this, these labs, uh, the lab owners had these ongoing conversations about what it meant to do local innovation. You know, what it meant to take these kind of Silicon Valley ethics of failing fast and, and you know, breaking stuff quickly. And what it meant to, you know, take this down to Jordan, where you got innovators who worked their ass off uh, to build an app that might never be viable commercially, for example. Um, and it was interesting to see humanitarians reflect on what it meant for them to stop giving away things and how skeptical people were when they show up with this large budget and they're not giving anyone anything. What they are doing is to try to build capacity and sort of walk people through this innovation process. And, and the project stopped. Um, and in many ways, you know, I think uh, we can say that it worked or didn't work. But, but it was, I think it was a very useful exercise for the humanitarian community to engage in ethics this way. Um, I think we can just switch slides. Um, so diagnosing aid. Why do we talk about extractivism? And this is sort of the very, very, very heavy theoretical part of the book, so I'm going to try to go light-toed on this. I've also spent my time. So why, why do we, should we talk about extractivism at this point of time? Um, now I'm going to just find my papers because I can't see all the way over there anymore. Um, yeah. Here. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that there was a golden age when we had, you know, the sector had paper and organized everyone and was only, you know, collecting the data it needed. Um, the humanitarian sector has, has been suffering from a data shortage, an information shortage uh, for, for, for decades and decades. So getting things organized, getting things registered, um, digitizing is really an improvement. Um, on the other hand, I think we all have seen projects where, you know, because I could, you know, I could get these data, so why shouldn't I? You know, instead of minimizing the data, it's like, oh, but I can do WASH and maybe some gender-based violence, and then I have these people here, and I can know about child health. I mean, and it's, it's very tempting to sort of overreach and overcollect. Um, some of you are doing research on data or on tech colonialism and data colonialism. And this is, is largely, for those of you who don't, it's kind of a project, a process of exploitation uh, of social life. It's data extraction in the global south by organizations from the global east and the global north. Um, and this is, in many ways, it's seen as kind of a continuation of that colonial practice of, of just extracting. Um, we also have uh, Susanna Zuboff. She talks about surveillance capitalism. Uh, which is a logic that imbues technology and, and sort of commands things into action. Um, I think humanitarian extractivism can't really be reduced to data colonialism or tech capitalism or, or surveillance capitalism. But there is something going on here. Uh, 
where, you know, who gets what. Historically, humanitarians have been sort of, it's been a very important part of the moral narrative that they go out and give something to someone. And that other person should be grateful. So you get this relationship where it's the good, the good doing good, and then it's the recipient sort of sitting there and being passive and, and supposedly grateful. You know, today it's not so clear anymore who gives what. Um, the second reason is that, you know, I, I've written Decline of Stuff. Um, increasingly, aid is about providing information, providing access to digital resources, um, but also um, monitoring. A lot of aid is now monitoring populations, monitoring that their health, what their health levels are, monitoring nutrition levels. So aid isn't really necessarily only providing the food. It's monitoring the distribution of the food. And this requires a lot of input resources. Um, so what actually happens at the other end isn't not necessarily so clear anymore. And then the third part of extractivism is this old neo-extractivist um, idea. It, it's a Latin American scholarly project with a lot of literature, very critical about neoliberal resource extraction. So I'll come in and I'll do... I'll, I'll eradicate your forests so I can have a plantation. I'll do mining and take out all the resources. I'll fish all the fish. I mean, you know. Uh, part of the problem with humanitarianism, similar to the extractivism, uh, neo-extractivism idea, is that, you know, we come in. And when we've been there for a while, hopefully, it's peaceful. You know, we, we sort of, we end suffering. We make it possible for other actors to come in, development actors, reconstruction actors, market actors. So in a way, we flatten the way for these other extractivist actors who want to harness natural resources. It's often very difficult to operate in an armed setting where the population is really, really starving or being very sick. But once humanitarians have been there, there is an aspect to sort of preparing for market intervention without any sort of semblance of, for example, social justice or democracy being present. And this is kind of the old schism, right, between the social justice human rights agenda and the idea of being neutral, impartial, doing no harm, but only only addressing need. And the third one is, is experimentalism. Um, what's going on, really? Uh, a lot of these products, processes that have been described so far uh, are experimental. They're new. You know, experimenting isn't a bad thing. We all need to experiment. If the NGOs didn't experiment, they wouldn't get anywhere. But the question is how and with whom. Um, and, and experimenting in places where you have no legal basis for operating, where the population you experiment with is very vulnerable, uh, where they have no other choice than becoming part of your experiment is deeply and morally problematic. Uh, I think the humanitarian sector has learned, um, but I also think that, for example, with ChatGPT, with, with generative AI, I mean, we're all now part of this experimentation, right? I mean, the whole sector has now become an experimental play, almost. Uh, so I do think that it, it's, it's okay to use this word experimentalism. You know, I'm going to just ask you guys to move along. I think I'll just do the last slide on the Red Cross because I think it's, and then I'll, I'll end. Um, this is a very interesting example because at the end of the day, there's enormous hoarding of data 
that you know humanitarians extract, that they organize, that they put into huge databases. It does a couple of things. First, it centralizes vulnerability in a very radical way. So the ICRC has their own databases. Uh, UNHCR has built a system called Primes. Uh, the World Food Program has Primero, has Scope. Uh, UNICEF has Primero. So these are, you know, just their databases, but they're very, very large databases coordinating all kinds of activity. And again, we would use your data being there literally forever. Um, so this hack happened because of a patch that wasn't really patched. It's, it, and it, but it's also this infinite vulnerability. I don't think anyone would have been able to defend themselves against this hack, or, or maybe, but, you know, humanitarians can't just turn around and say, we're now going to spend 75% of our budget on cybersecurity. And then we're going to spend 10% in salaries, and then we have some money that we can hand off as food aid. You know, this isn't an option. Uh, so, so what are, you know, there is this infinite vulnerability. We build systems that we can't defend. The problem is that we're still responsible for what's inside these systems. And I'll just end with sort of a short story about how this came to happen in my mind. So one of the key activities of the ICRC, after the war, they find missing people. They build very, very effective tracing units. Towards the end of the 90s, people are starting to get their own cell phones, their message boards. They start to self-organize, maybe in their local language. They're not that dependent on this uh, organized from the top tracing uh, service anymore. The organization itself is in a bit of a chaos around us. Things aren't going so well. Over the next decade, they do two things. They become a leader in humanitarian technology. They really sort of go all in. They develop standards, skills, hiring capacity. They also start becoming interested in migration. Um, So they build up databases on migrants. they help migrants, they have programs. The program that used to be tracing is now called Restoring Family Links. So I, in Norway, I will sit there and through the Norwegian Red Cross, I will supply my request for my aunt maybe in Yemen or my cousin in Syria or something like this. I think it really varies how much the local societies put in of data, as some societies put in more than others. Um, but when they were hacked, it was half a million, uh, I think it was half a million profiles across the world. Many, many, many societies had their operations hacked through this hack. It was a globally distributed hack. And a lot of the people that had their data hacked were very vulnerable. Um, so if you're interested in migration, possibly you have people in your, that have submitted claims to you that are not legal migrants. They would not like to be found by your local government. In the aftermath of this hack, the Norwegian Red Cross had to talk to the national security authorities and then a lot of others too did to get the help and get the protection and get the advice. Um, I don't know, you know what happened to sort of the process itself. I know that the, this is actually a pretty unique case because the people who had their data hacked, I believe, were also contacted by the local organizations in question, which is quite unique. I would like to see more humanitarians do this. Um, On the other hand, um, it didn't have to be this way. This kind of vulnerability was something that the Red Cross, the IFRC, and the ICRC set up. You know, they set up their own target. And, And this is what we can never get away from, right? We're trying to do good, but we're also producing these targets. 
we have to be responsible and accountable when things happen. I'm, I've been, I'm way over time now, so I'm just going to quit. So thank you so much. I think we can go to the last slide because it's where do we go from here? Thank you so much, Kristin. Then I'll invite you to join the panel here uh, together with Anand Nayer uh, and Martin Tannesson Krokal. Thank you so much, Kristin, for taking us uh, through uh, your work uh, and congratulations again on your book. For those of us who had the pleasure of working with you over the past decade plus, it's really a pleasure also to be here. Um, launching your book and see, seeing it out and now shared with the, the broader community uh, of, of colleagues and practitioners that you have engaged with over these years. And now we'll continue this conversation together with two practitioners. Uh, and that's also something you have been doing throughout your work to, to, to really be in dialogue with, uh, with practitioners. So, so very happy to have you both here. Uh, Anand Nair, you are uh, lead for the Global uh, Digital uh, Community Hub at the Norwegian Refugee Council uh, here in Oslo. We'll hear more about that uh, as well. And Morten Tennesson Krokan uh, from the Norwegian Red Cross, so our neighbours just across uh, the yard, um, uh, working at the Entity of Humanitarian uh, Analysis uh, at the Norwegian Red Cross, and notably with Europe and Latin America, as well as global health. Um, I would like to maybe start um, asking you to uh, maybe share one or two reflections based on what Kristin has shared with us here, if uh, what you recognize perhaps from your, from your work across the years, from maybe previously before the joining the NRC or with, within the NRC, and, and you, Morten, from different uh, parts of your work mm. at, the, at the Norwegian Red Cross. Would you like to start, Anna? Yeah, I could do it. Mm. Um, I mean, just the half an hour talk itself was... A long list of things that we could talk about for years, not even like for hours. Um, but, but there were many important nuggets that you left behind, which I still have my own personal dilemma to think about. Um, like just the aspect of do no harm. Personally, sometimes I feel if someone is caught in a place where you're getting bombed from all sides, would that person want not to be harmed or would it mean in terms of reducing harm? Is it do no harm or be reduced the harm mm. in some way possible? So that is something that I personally keep reflecting on. I still don't have an answer to. Um, but that ties up all the points that you mentioned in some way or the other. Like uh, the aspect of succeeding. Even when you succeed, you might cause risks for people. So that is something to unpack further. And it's also for me to go back and see if we are doing something along those lines. Uh, or are we taking conscious efforts to reducing the risks the way we work? That is something to dig up on for sure. Um, data security aspect. Uh, you mentioned right at the end, you can't really have a big chunk of a project dedicated to data security. So how does any humanitarian organization, international organizations still have bigger budget? For a smaller organization, they may not even have the capacity to write good proposals, let alone dedicating budgets for data security. So that is something that we as a 
sector and this goes beyond the sector as well because i don't think um we ourselves can solve this problem and this is me working with the private sector before and then transitioning into development humanitarian sector because the private sector has a lot of funds that they can invest in doing a lot of research that we as a humanitarian sector may just not have the possibility to so is there something that we can leverage out of the work that is done by someone else and get it into our sector to elevate the security levels with our data uh, i'll stop at that and then mm. we can dig into more things later what about you martin yeah uh, the list is long i agree anna and thank <laughs> you but first of all thank you christine for writing the book it's a good read it's a, it's fun and i i i sense your kind of you, you <laughs> try to curb your critics critical voice but i can hear your presentation that it's there and it's, i think it's nicely balanced and it's a, it's a good read it's a fun read um and i think um and you know one of the main takeaways for me is that it's about human nature mm. look we have this thing let's see what we can do about it and then you have this you know like the, the unicef example wearables for good you have this sensation that now we're going to solve so many problems right but at the end of the day it's 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 much about you know available information that we make much more information available which like you said is was very much needed and now we have very good situation overviews of even the most detailed communities many places by the way all other actors have that same information so that can actually also you know um accelerate politicization of humanitarian aid which is another aspect but but then it's just avail available information is mm. just available information so it's it's just one piece of the puzzle mm. so it it's it helps us solve some problems but we still live in a physical world mm. um we still have mountains and and storms and and wars and weapons and people con confined in in areas by non state armed groups uh, and and this available information is just one piece mm. in in a big puzzle So but thank you for writing the book. Mm. This is a very important contribution I think to to our sector. Thank you. I'll uh, I'll now turn to and yeah the, you'll get the word as well afterwards Christine. But I'll now turn to um to a question to both of you to share a bit from your own experience from your organizations. We sometimes uh, as uh, as researchers talk about uh, the tech optimism or tech pessimism. Uh, as different yeah as you just illustrated as well uh, as different ways of of being optimistic about all the opportunities or or maybe pessimistic about the the risks but if we start on the optimistic side of things could you share an an example of a solution or a procedure that has had a significant positive or maybe surprising impact in in your work right um i can't take credit for the work that was done because it happened <laughs> before i joined uh but with the recent uh, recent enough ukraine example uh we were able to develop mechanisms by which we could register a lot of people to provide cash support at scale so we were able to uh, engage with almost half a million um households and then interact with them through some of the automation that we brought in through whatsapp for example um and some other platforms as well but when i take a step back or think of mm. a scenario uh, a decade or two earlier 
reaching out to half a million people would mean you have to bump up your staff by thousands mm. so that is something that we were able to achieve by the scale at which we could reach out uh, with a limited staff that was quite uh, commendable i would say yeah thanks good good illustration yeah morten yeah um okay so just very briefly i think that the debate on what is the humanitarian sector who are they who are humanitarian workers what is humanitarian work what is principled humanitarian action who should do it uh you you you, you kind of touched upon it because the super agencies like the icrc and the nrc they reach very few people compared to all families friends local communities local organizations people who live there so let's just keep that in mind who are we so that's just uh, introducing this and i i agree with anand that uh, cash and voucher assistance definitely that's a good very good example um uh, the red cross is doing that for instance now in ukraine and 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 um, impacted countries uh also community based surveillance um uh norcross norwegian red cross and and the ifrc developed this in 2012 in sierra leone responding to the cholera epidemic there it's it's it's, it's been built uh so you can use very easy or simple uh, mobile technology devices just to to, to do messaging mm-hmm. and lastly the the district health information system where you Red Cross, Red Crescent, National Societies, Afghanistan, Ukraine, Somalia, they gather and collect data, which, for instance, in Ukraine, it's it's controlled by the Ukraine National uh, Red Cross National Society, which is also important with what you're saying. This is integrated to the public information health systems. So um, these are just three examples. Yeah. It's very, very useful as well. Uh, Christine, anything you would like to... I think you have shown well in your, both in your book and in the presentation now that, that the sector has also learned over the years. And you also mentioned at the end that, that it's not like there is a golden age at which everything worked much better and, and now there's these digital tools that have entered. There have been a concrete information gap and... and uh, and the, these tools also allow to to ha- have better access and distribution of uh, of information. And and you show us that the sector has also learned for over these years that you have been following it. Uh, but but what would you like to maybe sum up from from this uh, now in terms of uh, yeah the, the state of things now? Uh, now we're also at a at a point in time where we're looking at the the entrance of of uh, a new experimentation with AI, for, for instance. But, but, but you show that the sector is willing to learn and, and uh, has learned also over the past few years. I mean, I, I think very well illustrated by, you know, there are dilemmas that we can't solve. So when we were born, I think the world had, what, 5 million billion people? Now it has 8-something. I mean, there's an enormous population growth. Uh, the Sudan Civil War has, you know, millions of people fleeing. Um, we've, so, so it's just the scale, as you say. You know, you can't suddenly hire twenty-five thousand people to hand out physical money, and and I think nobody really would like to go back to this extremely hierarchical sort of interaction between me having to ask you for pocket money. I mean, there are many, many good things about you know mm. the capitalist market approach, um, but I also think there there are dilemmas that we, we're not going to solve. But I think you know trying to give you know. People GDPR, for example, trying to kind of 
make sure that your recipients are treated to the best possible standards and treatment you can give them. Um, and, and then for us as critics, I think it's also, you know, sort of curb your tongue a little bit. So I can criticize that people have to have digital identities to get aid. But the reality is, particularly for girl babies, if they don't have identities, things will be very difficult in terms of healthcare, in terms of access to school. I mean, for anyone with daughters in the audience, would you like your girl child to have a legal registered identity? Yes, please. Uh, so there's also progress in this. There's also this idea that you need the data to govern. Um, but I think we're just going to be, be in these conversations. Mm. Yeah, and the importance of continuing to have that conversation yeah. and that, uh, that awareness. And the dilemmas may not be solved, but, but to be, be aware of, of them. Mm. But, but going back to this, uh, how, now how to mitigate risk uh, in the use of, of digital um, data and uh, infrastructures, uh, which is, of course, a very broad area. But could you, could you now also, uh, speaking of how the sector has learned, could you say a little bit from your respective work, how, how would you say that you work in your organizations, both with mitigating risk, but perhaps also for, uh, concretely, uh, how do you make sure that you learn from processes that may have failed? or that didn't maybe turn out as they should have. Whoever, would yeah. you like to start if you okay. want to Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I think um, all of this is also have, has a, a very strong aspect of localization. So when you talk about risk mitigation, you need to, to ask mm -hmm. where, right? Um, and uh, the, uh, the audience here. So the, the sector decided to localize or put localization <laughs> on front about a decade, thank you. eight years ago. Yep. So localizing yeah. aid is the buzzword we've been going after for the last eight years. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, so I believe that the, the, um, the humanitarian sector, as the, in traditional terms, should invest more time to build capacity where the data is collected. Mm. So you have the, 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 the mitigation is as close as possible to, to where it's mm. happening. Um, the example of Ukraine Red Cross, for instance, they are in control, uh, and then, um, uh, and I think I leave it to Anand because this is a very much localization agenda aspect. I think um, for us, there are certain things that we do within our team, and then you have uh, things happening at the project level, uh, organizational level. But within our team, we try to do something uh, aligned with the agile approach of having retrospectives every two weeks. And this is basically breaking down what went well, what did not go well, what we need to do if things did not go well. So that is quick introspection that happens quite regularly. And apart from that, at the project level, you always have uh, the monitoring and evaluation the L part usually sometimes gets forgotten of the learning part from Mel. Um, but that is something that is taken into account. Uh, not sure if it is frequent enough. Uh, or do we wait till the end of the year when we do the reporting? And, uh, we, and this is something that I've seen across sector. And then within NRC, we also have something called as an after action review or a report. Uh, which takes more of a holistic zoomed out approach to understand uh, what has happened in the project and where can we grow from here on. 
Um, so there are different aspects that we look at, but yeah, I think it's something that all of us uh, have to improve. Mm. Um, just something that I feel we are not doing enough of. Mm. Yeah, and and you you worked with uh, uh, more with uh, local organizations before you joined the NRC. Is there a big difference in how in how how you work uh, on these processes? With the local organizations, I work. They are more worried about keeping the organization up and running next month. Mm. Yep. Mm. You know, next month, next year, will we survive? Can we pay our staff enough? Yeah. Uh, or we tell our staff that okay, once we get money, we'll pay you retroactively. <laughs> uh, even if they have a lot of learning, I wonder if they have that power dynamics to invest something and change the things that they have been working on. Uh, of course, at an organizational smaller scale level, they should try and improve. Everyone should try and improve the way we are working. But overall, when it comes to implementing some of the learning, sometimes I feel they are at the behest of a bigger donor telling them what needs to be done. So that learning part sometimes gets sidelined. Uh, this is just yeah. from my personal yeah. experience of, of working with yeah. me also. Yeah, but a good illustration. Yes, Kirsten. Now, you, you mentioned this, this, you know, how we see technology. So, you know, we usually have the scale. So it's the, it's the very negative people, the Luddites who reject all technology. Then it's sort of the critical skeptics. Then it's the people who are fairly positive. I guess a lot of us are in the middle. And then it's the utopianists, you know, the people who want to sell you revolutions and game changers and, and basically, you know, are, are tech missionaries. And and most things happen in the, in the middle here. Um but I think so. So, so when you really are scared of technology, you, ima- you know, imagine these catastrophic failures. You know, the AI monster is coming to kill us all. Is the current one, which I think actually probably a lot of us have signed up to. But, <laughs> but you know, we're we're afraid of things. Um, on the other hand, I do think that we need not necessarily to be afraid, but to think more carefully about redundancy and how we make systems robust. Mm. So you know, integrate an untold number of people were killed in, in combat, in local violence, starvation, disease. And, and we know very little about this. You know, you know, what were the numbers? What happened to these populations? Um, we see the same with sort of shutdowns in Gaza. What's actually happening here? Uh, knowing very little about CAR. So it's not necessarily that someone went in to attack something, but that things were closed down, things were shuttered, there was a confluence of violence and, and unrest. There just wasn't any digital infrastructure. So, so I think, you know, and this makes us blind in a way. You know, we, it, it's like they don't, ex- these things don't exist because we don't see them. You know, what does that mean? And, and we also have, you know, two highly publicized humanitarian disasters ongoing at the moment. But we have many, many more, particularly, I would say, Sudan. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that it's almost like we're, we're blind. And, and I think this has, is deeply ethically problematic. Um, so, so crisis might come I mean, for tech disasters, but not necessarily as we uh, expect or imagine them. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll soon also open up to to you in, in the audience for to to yeah. hear your your questions as well, both to Kristin and to the yeah. to the panel here. Uh, but one more more question, uh, as you have il- illustrated. Uh, in, in your book and also for, from, from your experiences, there is a, a push to collect more and more uh, data from operations, from beneficiaries. 
uh, also a push maybe from donors in order to be able to to show that this money has gone to what we, we promised it would, but also from uh, from the technology side of things that uh, that if if you collect more, the, the the responses operations will be more efficient and more tailored to to the needs. Uh, but but we also know that, and we, we discussed this this earlier as well, that that there is also uh, maybe some resistance in the sector sometimes to how much data do we need to to collect. But how how do you like? Is it possible to resist this this push? And and how do you how do you do that? Yeah. Would like to start. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, from the Norwegian Red Cross experience, um, we make sure or we work together with the national societies, Red Cross or Red Crescent, mm. like Ukraine and Palestinian Red Crescent, Columbia Red Cross. Mm. So we do not push or ask for more information that is necessary or or better put they they are in the driving seat of what is needed so we, so we support their approach what they deem necessary norwegian donors norad mfa are one of the best donors in terms of push and data collection so we don't have a donor push to collect data so this is not really so you have both that the national society is in the driving seat on on how they want to do it and how much they can collect, what is safe safe to collect. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we have donors that don't push or request more data than necessary. Yep. So I think from Norwegian Red Cross perspective, this is uh, pretty well dealt with, I and mean, we're in a good yep. good position, I would say. Yeah, it's two sort of control mechanisms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Mm. Yep. Yes, Anand. Yeah. Um, I have three points that I would quickly like to, I'll try to be succinct, mm -hmm. not use up a lot of time. Um, in general, with the work I do, I work very similar uh, to the aspects Morton mentioned. Uh, we work a lot with country offices, but eventually they are the ones who are designing. So, uh, Personally, I think less is more. Uh, we are... Uh, the way we are designing some of the surveys, we put questions for which we need, we want answers, not even we need. Um, so we don't really, really assess and see if we really need that question. And let alone if you're working in a consortium, every organization have uh, has their own set of questions to add. And then before you know it, you have 100 question long surveys. So less is more. Uh, uh, the second part, I think something that we need to start actively thinking about is uh, survey fatigue. Mm. Um, I, I don't even respond to those pop-ups that say, how was your call? Like, this, <laughs> I've grown blind to it. And some of the people we are working with, they might be interviewed by multiple organizations, multiple units of the same organizations, mm. and they are constantly answering these questions. So... The questions we ask, we need to think about the mindset of the person that we are talking to. Do When they are going through this traumatic experience, do they really want to answer your survey questions? If someone is in the middle of a flood, would they want to fill out the <laughs> things that you have lost? And mm. <laughs> So th yeah. these things, that it, it's something that we need to reflect upon when we uh, come up with service. And the last thing is something that popped up on my Spotify the other day. Uh, they wanted to interview me and uh, ask me questions about my experience and so on. And they were going to pay me, I, I don't know the exact number, it was like $50 or $65 mm -hmm. for 
45 minutes of questioning something uh, but we so they are valuing my time my feedback and they are compensating me for it mm. uh, have we started thinking about that in terms of the people we interview mm-hmm. uh, let alone having budget for it that's yeah. a different yeah. aspect altogether mm. but that is something that we need to think about because someone is actually providing you valuable information about their life uh, mm. the things that they have seen and they are going mm. through a lot of struggle yeah. uh, so these three things we should definitely consider from a personal side i try to question people whenever they create surveys about these three aspects yeah. mm. thank you for sharing these uh, yeah really interesting points anything you would like to to add kirsten no yeah then we'll uh, we'll open up for for comments questions from the audience please introduce yourselves uh, first And short questions then we'll have time for more questions um, my name is inger johanna asting and i'm uh, i'm just a retired uh, 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 teacher <laughs> and but i'm uh, i have volunteered in uh, working with asylum seekers and refugees and um uh, when you are now talking about vulnerable people uh, and uh, it, lots of data is um collected and stored and uh, uh in the asylum camp i learned that for instance in syria uh the the red crescent is uh, under the government so so i wonder when uh, when when you uh, find data or udi finds the data about about um people they may be uh, considered to take here as refugees uh and or if they ask uh, or the red cross uh, is if this data is available for the red crescent uh, and the, you have a link to the government uh, uh, maybe in uh, also in other countries that and you uh, and we know that they have the security people all over and agents is it uh, a danger that collected data can fall into the hands of sort of the enemy thank you Thank you. Important and good good question. I think you were next. And if you raise yes, sorry. No. Yes, sorry. And raise your hand those others who yeah. One more her. her. Yeah. But but you you next. Yep, yeah, sorry. Uh good morning everyone. Thank you so much. It was such a nice um presentation and congratulations on your book. I'm Farzana Elham Kuchay. I'm from Afghanistan, so I've been in all stages of this aid <laughs> i've been receiver i've been medal giver i've been uh someone who was observing and i'm observing now from he- from here in norway so for me it was always different as a receiver as a giver as a someone observer in norway my experience toward aid and data was different as a receiver for example there's harsh things happening around you and you don't have much of a choice so you will trade off something 
obviously, and it won't be your life and access to some basic needs. It's data, maybe, mm. <laughs> to trade off. So I was wondering, when you're working or at least trying to regulate data and aid and balance this, while seeing all international organizations are so ambitious to target people and go and give a hand, how would you regulate, like according to us here in Norway mm. or according to people there? Mm. Like it, it's completely different aspects. And we should like consider this as a challenge. We're regulating according to us because we think it's important data should be private and these, these. But what do they think? Mm. What's priority for them? Thank you. And then there was yeah one question in the back there, and then Will. Um, hi. First of all, very uh, thank you for the insightful sharing. Um, and uh, I'm Yujie, uh, currently an intern at Norwegian Refugee Council. Um, actually, I'm doing the data protection support for a digital uh, legal aid um, program platform that NRC is building. So actually, it's very relevant to the discussion, very relevant to the work. And uh, and I think we come across many similar questions where, uh, for example, when design the platform, some of the data uh, to collect and uh, uh, for example, from um, like the gen, maybe should we uh, collect the gender, age, or uh, and the location data from the beneficiaries, or just to pro provide to, or to protect their privacy? So actually, my question is that from donors' per perspective, maybe you at one side you have transparency, and uh, also at some point the beneficiary is also. Um, like from research perspective, you might need to understand what a group uh, like, where for example, which camp have some more more need for the um, aid, and what's their like uh, geo like the, um, like age or gender or whatever, and then so how to balance the privacy when you mentioned that you maybe you you try to. Uh, minimize the data that required, but at the same time, maybe you need some sort of transparency to understand where the money goes and uh, who is receiving them, and also how you learn from the project and uh, to improve, like you know, this uh, this two aspect. So, I, uh, uh, my question is, how do you um, balance the necessity from this uh, two sides? I have. Uh, I think we'll, we we can have a first round of of. Uh addressing some of these questions and then I'll come back to your question yes and I have if were there other I have you Malcolm you you okay super then I have a little group of <laughs> more questions so some short reflections would you like to start Kristin so thank you actually I, I think it would be nice if you treat the three of you could actually have your own little panel afterwards because yeah. <laughs> they were beautifully put together those comments I mean I, I think it's this ongoing dilemma right how do you make things legal how do you make them respectful but how do you make them effective enough to justify the funding you were using and, and to support, you know, to fulfill your mission. And, and it's just an ongoing conversation, I think. Um, I think with, with, I mean, I'll let you answer this, but I, th I think in, in the Red Cross family, I, I think people are quite aware of who does what and, and have sort of, uh, you know, established relations. Um, I, I think for European-based organizations, GDPR obviously rules to roost. I mean, there are experts here in the room who can pontificate on the GDPR until the sun <laughs> comes down. Uh, but, 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 you know, for other, for example, aid organizations with American money 
are regulated differently. Um, to make things more complicated, you know, we are also using American platforms. So, so, you know, where does the data go? Where do you place it? Whose regulation are you under? What happens, for example, in this increasingly difficult geopolitical uh, relationship between China and the U.S.? What happens to tech, for example? I think there are a lot of unsolved questions. Uh, but to get back to the first question, people are frequently upset about UNHCR sharing, you know, data with Singapore or Malaysia, whatever. Uh, to be present in a country, humanitarian organizations have to sign host country agreements with that country. Um, I think we cannot imagine a large NGO sitting down in Norway and building a camp with 50,000 people without actually sharing that data with the Norwegian government. And, and that goes for other countries as well. So UNHCR has a lot of problems, but, but sort of signing on to host country agreements is actually a requirement for being able to operate. And it's an unfortunate trade-off that you have to share data, uh, but it's sort of what it is. Mm. Any other additions you would like to, to add to this, this question? Yeah, um, thank you. Good mm. questions. And uh, really on the spot uh, to the Syrian Arab Red Crescent question. Mm. Um, so just to describe, define what the role of a national society is. So the Norwegian Red Cross in Norway is, is, is a legal autonomous entity, mm. right? So so we decide. The, the rules that we are governed by are the humanitarian principles. So we are impartial humanitarian actors. Uh, that's a big debate if you go travel the world in different mm. countries. But, but that's... So for the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, we are very aware of, of their position in Syria. At the same time, it's 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 a Syrian organization. It's it's enshrined in Syrian law. Mm. So what we can do uh, as a Norwegian Red Cross, as the International Red Cross, what we can do is to make sure that we do no harm to collect more data than necessary and systematize it, make it vulnerable, but at the same time uh, uh, undertake trainings and system strengthening and make Syrian Arab Red Crescent aware of what can be uh, uh, um, uh, vulnerabilities, but at the same time have and encourage, and that is also the International Red Cross Committee, dialogue with the governments on these aspects. So there are mm. different approaches mm. to take care of this. It's difficult, but it's, it's, there are ways of, of doing it. Mm. But just briefly, I think the international community learned a lesson with the, the fall of Kabul when international mm. actors left behind a lot of data a lot of hardware, and, and you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise that Taliban was able to access this. Um, so, so I think that was less. I don't know how this lesson is going to be learned, but it was learned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll come back. I'll just collect a, a, more, a few more yeah. questions, and then, then we'll have a last yeah. round of, of addressing those. Uh, my name is Abed. Uh, I'm also an intern at Norwegian Refugee Council, working with my colleague, uh, Udje. Um, uh, my question is uh, primarily targeted to Kristen, but also the rest of the uh, guest speakers, they are also welcome to reply. Um, this is, I think, it's um, arguably part of the humanitarian sector's nature that we tend to unintentionally procrastinate whenever an innovation is suggested or recommended because we have to consider every possibility, most likely the, uh, the, the worst possibilities to try to mitigate race, mm. uh, risk. So, and and sometimes when we come to the time that we we are making a decision, it's already too late. That innovation has kind of expired, and then a new one comes on. What do you recommend 
Or what do you suggest so that it makes the process of decision-making regarding these new technologies a little bit more efficient? Because that's also efficiency, especially regarding these kind of topics, is also a, uh, some sort of a critic uh, among the humanitarian workers and humanitarian sector. Mm. Thank you. Thank you very much. And then we have uh, in the back, Malcolm. So three short questions and then back to the panel. Yeah, Malcolm Langford, uh, University of Oslo. So congrats on the book, uh, Christine. Just a short question on your golden age uh, uh, comparison. When we were young. Yeah, when we were young, yes. <laughs> Sounds like an Adele song. Um, um, but if we think back to humanitarian aid, it always has used technologies. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the whole way we structure uh, interventions. And, for example, when we decided to use wheat and rice from Western countries mm. to provide uh, material aid, it displaced local farmers. It had all these systemic effects. So it, is it really a shift uh, that we're seeing or is it just a question of scale? And we, perhaps we need mm. to also learn from the past in terms of how we cause unintended consequences for not, not understanding essentially complex adaptive systems that we're, we're operating in. Thank you. And you can pass the microphone to Eric. Hello. Eric from the Norwegian Red Cross. Uh, congrats on the book, Christian. Um, I take your title, Extractivism, back to Harold Bond in the 80s of sort of how aid organizations are sort of and the power uh, dynamic, but also to sort of this accountability dilemma of accountability 101 that aid agencies, we tend to be accountable towards our donor mostly. And a lot of these data which we're collecting is to be compliant so that the donors can tell their taxpayers that the money had results. Um, so this is an old challenge, which will continue. But I think mm -hmm. that the title of this discussion of going forward is the potential of digitalization in transferring that power to the people in need. And these cheap, basic smartphones, which are so powerful and could mm -hmm. empower them so much. I know it's not your specific field, but ha having working on it, what do you see as the biggest potentials in actually shifting power to the people in need using digital transformation. Super. Thanks a lot. And then Christophe to, to finish up. Okay, thank you. So uh, you, you covered the part of the, the role of the state already, but I, I want you to just comment a little more on the role of private actors, private companies like Google, Meta. And um, because also when we think of humanitarian extractivism, we now discussed a lot of the organizations, but they collaborate often very closely with MasterCard, for instance, other companies. Mm. And I think their role in this picture is very important in order to, to, to get that. Um, second, you, you gave the example of uh, Spotify offering you a price. Mm. So, and, and the concept of digital bodies sort of speak to the question then, what's the right price of a digital body? And who should set it? If we were actually going to pay people for their digital bodies, what would the right price be? Very good questions, all of you. Thank you so much. Maybe we should start from here and then we finish up with Christian. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll be short. I'll, I'll uh, respond to this question of, about learning I did earlier. So there's a long way from available information to institutional organizational learning. So that there's a, there are many steps to be taken from available information. So I think that, um, again, as a national society, Red Cross, Red Crescent, they will have to, and we can support, they'll have to define what is the learning needed and what is the capacity to actually learn something from this. And there is so much more learning that than beyond that you can put into digits and, and digitalize. So 
less is more. But yeah, of course, we need a certain level of information to learn. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Anand. Um, I would be naive if I say that uh, there are no risks involved in the security. I have friends working specifically in security and all they do the whole day is try to prevent attacks from happening. So they are constantly getting attacked, but they are trying to block them off. So there are mechanisms by which that can be done. Um, so that is something we have to acknowledge. There's no two questions about it. You will get attacked, prepare for it. That should be. Uh, I'm just going to randomly pick some of the aspects about compromising to get something. So uh, there is a joke at home. Uh, right now, Google and UDI knows more about me than my partner. So it's something that I have to give up on, but I don't know the consequences of giving that up. And that was uh, mentioned about someone here. Uh, however, to attain certain services or the right mm -hmm. to live in this country, I have to give that up. Uh, that is kind of a balance that... I don't have an answer to what can you give to get what because the consequences of, let's say, AI getting into the picture, how this whole thing changes, can someone create a duplicate identity and use it? Mm. So I don't know yet. Um, so I can't really say what is the right balance between the two. Thank you, Christine. So I'll do a broad sweep. Uh, so just to start with Malcolm's question about did something really change? I mean, I, I think for aid, and, and I'm speaking specifically about the humanitarian sector, um, because the humanitarian sector comes sort of dis disengaged with human rights and social justice. There isn't a political social change agenda here. You know, it doesn't have a vision of transformation and change. It has a vision of ending harm and need. Um, so I think, you know, it used to be about soft power and, and maybe saviorism, but now something is flowing back, and that's the extractivist part. The data is flowing back. A gift is coming back. It's not you giving the gift. It's, it's you getting the gift. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at here. Um, I, I think with, with um, the question about, you know, when we finally decide on this app, it's already dead or bypassed. Uh, humanitarians are not great at procurement, and I have to say, we as academics have been terrible in, in facilitating the conversation. So I think humanitarian procurement and humanitarian tech procurement is something that we should discuss a lot more as academics. Um, and that maybe those of us who study humanitarian issues should venture more into this. So I, th I think procurement processes, for example. Um, I think humanitarians are notoriously resistant to, to litigation and law and lawyering. They, they're not happy about the legal standards. That's a different aspect. It will not help you with quick procurement. But, but there are certain governance aspects that I still wonder about with very large humanitarian organizations, such as, yeah, for example, the NRC or with UNHCR or UNICEF, that are very, very large and they're governed in a very different way than you would have expected entities with this kind of budget. And finally, the private sector. I mean, in 2012, you know, we thought that Facebook was going to solve, bring world peace. I mean, we did. Uh, so I think we no longer do. And that's probably an advantage. Um, but, you know, the actors, actors are still out there and they provide the digital critical infrastructure on which we do everything. From, you know, teaching to grading to buying stuff to paying our staff. Uh, so we need to deal with this. 
but I think we do so with a much more careful and critical approach than we used to. Which I think counts as progress. We have to yeah. count progress. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, uh, thank you so much. Congratulations again, Christine, and thank you for keeping up this conversation. Uh, and thank you for joining us for this thank conversation, you. Armand and Morten. And thank you all for coming and uh, contributing to launching the book. Thank you. A good read. Thank you for listening to Prio Events. For more interesting and thought-provoking content, listen to Prio's Peace in a Pod, a monthly podcast where we invite researchers and industry experts to discuss issues on conflict and peace.